Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting, and also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to part two of episode 20, my interview with Bob Erickson, regional biologist with the National Wild Turkey Federation, where we are talking about the breeding cycle of hens. But before I get into this week's episode, I want to wish you all a very happy new year. I hope you've enjoyed your time with your family over the holidays. I hope it's been a safe and memorable time for you. And I also want to take time to thank the people who have left reviews for the Turkey Hunter podcast on iTunes. Those reviews are greatly appreciated. They do a lot to help keep me motivated and keep me bringing you good content. So I appreciate that. In particular, I'd like to thank Clue PR. And on iTunes, he says, finally, I'm an avid turkey hunter, originally from Birmingham, Alabama, residing in western Kentucky. I spent months searching iTunes for turkey hunting podcasts before discovering this one. The show is well done, informative, funny, and connects me to the Alabama tradition of turkey hunting. Andy, thanks for the show. See you in the spring. Roll Tide. See. We'll see. Roll Tide. And thank you for taking time to post the review, and I appreciate your positive input. And I'd also like to thank those who have been listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash I am turkey hunting and been giving us likes there. And I would ask all of you, if you're listening to this podcast on Facebook, to please share it. If you learned one thing from this podcast today, please share it on your newsfeed with those that you are friends with so that they can benefit from this information as well. So this week, I'd especially like to thank Corey Lyons, Peter C. Shanta Sr., Trey Owen, J.M. Sims, Bud Fielder, Isaac Rivera, Adam David Drinken, Tim Reba, and John Briard. I'd like to thank you guys for clicking the like button on part one of episode 20. All right, so let's go ahead and get into part two of episode 20. This is the final part of the episode with Bob Erickson. And in this episode, Bob's going to tell us what activities we need to avoid on our property during nesting season. He's going to let us know some actions that we can take on our property to actually improve nesting success. He's going to tell us what comprises good brood rearing habitat, the primary food source for poults, He is also going to share with us what his years of research have taught him about wild turkeys and how that's helped him to become a better turkey hunter. He's going to share his most recent successful turkey hunt and what made that hunt successful. So without further ado, let's jump right into this part of the episode and I will see you on the other side. 
Is there any type of activity that we would need to avoid on our hunting property during nesting and brooding season to make sure we have more success, you know, like mowing fields and burning, that type of thing? Uh, yeah, there is. I, I would avoid mowing fields from the period of, say, early April through July 15 in most of the country because that will pretty much cover the, the nesting time. Prescribed fire, you have to work with prescribed fire when the conditions are right. Spring burning is a very, very effective technique at managing habitat effectively, especially in the southeast. So if you're managing a piece of property and the manager says, you know, we need to do a spring burn, I would not avoid that because ultimately you may cause a couple of nests to be abandoned, but in the next couple of years, you'll have better nesting habitat. So you might sacrifice for a year for better success down the road. Right. And you mentioned earlier treetops from timber yes. work that's been done and that type of thing being, you know, good good nesting habitat. Are there anything that, that we can do as landowners or land managers that can help to increase the success or the yes. nesting success? Yes. You need to have nesting habitat with brood habitat within a relatively short distance because the longer the distance between where she hatches those young owls and where they, they have to go to find good foraging, the more chance they're going to get picked off by predators. So mm. if you're managing your forest, you're doing some cutting in the forest, a clear cut of five or six acres or even more will provide some good nesting habitat for a few years. You can leave some slash in there, let the blackberry brambles grow up, and some herbaceous material of the grasses and stuff. And as that clear cut matures, it will lose its value as nesting habitat once the trees start to come in and shade out the, the brushy understory. So you need to move to another spot and do another clear cut. But nearby those clear cuts and those areas that you're managing, and you can manage, by the way, four blackberries by every couple of years going in there and doing some brush hogging in the late summer to set back that succession. And the next year, they'll grow back. You, know, you might be behind in a year, but the next but after two years, you'll have blackberry brambles in there again. So brush hogging is a good method of setting that succession back. And if you have some brood, some nest brood habitat near that nesting habitat in the form of an herbaceous opening, clover, and the legume and grass fields, that kind of thing, that aren't too thick so that the pulse can freely move through them. That, that provides good brood habitat. And if it's close to nesting habitat, you're doing good stuff. I had read, it may have been in Turkey Country Magazine, but I'd read that the bunch-type grasses that have a, the grasses coming up from a clump mm -hmm. and room in between those clumps for the poults to maneuver without getting tripped up is a great brood That's habitat. Right. Yeah, for sure. You want to avoid any kind of, of vegetation that gets real thick and rank that's going to impede the mobility of the poults. So bunch grasses, so warm-season grasses, are very good. Also, clover mixes are very good as brood habitat. The, the clover and other legumes produce nitrogen that attracts insects and insects of the primary food for the poults. So their ability to move through it and the availability of insects are the two things you have to you know. Okay. So if you, have a, not... if, you have, if you have a field that's just getting a little bit too thick, you know, light disking can help that to be less thick. You want to disk through in the late summer or in the early spring before nesting would take place, say in March, get in there and do a light disking to break up some of the sod. And the primary food source for the poults is the insects, is it not? Oh, yeah, about 85 to 90 percent of their food items, of their important food items for the first six to eight weeks are insects. They continue to feed on insects on into the fall until a heavy frost kills the crickets and grasshoppers. So even though the insect portion of their diet is smaller as the summer goes on, insects are still a pretty important food source. And so they're not necessarily eating the grass in those fields. They're eating the insects that are in the grass in those fields. 
So that's right. Now, the hen, on the other hand, will forage more on the grass and clovers than the poults will. But those insects really, that's what the protein needs that's growing poults are met by the insects. You said plants that are high in nitrogen attract more insects. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Legumes, um, you know, clover, trefoil, any plant, plant that's a nitrogen fixer is going to have a positive impact on insect populations. That's interesting. I had no idea about that. Well, over all the years of your research and everything that you've done, is there anything that you've learned from your research, maybe one or two things that you've put to use that have made you more successful in the turkey woods? Yeah. I, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that gobblers that, that are heavily involved with hens early in the morning can be had later in the day. Later in the morning, if you can only hunt till noon, or later in the day, if you can hunt all day during the spring. The other thing that I think a lot of turkey hunters don't key in on is the fact that as the season progresses, gobblers are less vocal, but they mm-hmm. also have less hens. So you are more apt in the later part of the season to call up one of those old long beards with the long spurs than you are early in the season. Because that gobbler, that, that old gobbler who's had three or four or five years' experience, knows where to find the hens. He knows where they're going to be first thing in the morning. And when he can't find them, he's going to be patrolling, looking for them. He may not be vocal. You may have to sit quietly and call sparingly. But there's a good likelihood that sometime during that last week or so of the season, you're going to call them up. Yeah. I had a conversation with a gentleman a couple of days ago about areas that gobblers seem to be more sure that when you're in that area and you're calling, they seem to be more apt to think that you're a hen in that area than in other areas. So, you know, meaning that there are areas where gobblers know that hens tend to congregate. Is that kind of your experience as well? Or is there any research to prove that? I think uh, what that gentleman is noticing is that there are areas that hens will typically go to meet gobblers, and and those are just areas that the gobblers feel comfortable in and the hens feel comfortable in. Maybe there's a pretty good visibility. They can spend some time there feeding and displaying without being approached by predators. It's an area they feel safe for whatever reason. It probably has a lot to do with their ability to see or if they've never had disturbance at that site. Okay. And what do you typically see as far as disturbances go? If you're in an area and you're bumping turkeys quite frequently, how long is it going to be, in your experience, before those turkeys pack up and move a little ways out of the area? They're constantly disturbed on a regular basis. I think that rather than leave the area, they'll just become less vocal, and they'll be a whole lot more wary about approaching that spot. So as a hunter, if you're hunting public land, for instance, it's gotten a lot of pressure. You're going to have to really exercise a lot of patience and remain still for long periods of time in order to have golfers come in on you. Because but the way they'll approach that area is going to be with a very circumspect look at it. They're going to approach it slowly and quietly rather than come and charging and gobbling and splaying. Right. Well, I greatly appreciate you sharing information with us today. I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, actually, I guess I have two more questions for you, but let's let's go with one here. This this question I ask of everyone who comes on the show with me. Can you tell me the story of your last successful turkey hunt and the one or two things that you did during that hunt that made the hunt a success? Okay. I had a gobbler that on the opening day of the spring gobbler season, I owled him up. He gobbled a few times, and there were, sounded like there were several gobblers together. I just didn't have a, a good feeling that they were going to be real active that day by the way they responded to the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Second week, second Saturday of the season, I was only able to hunt that area Saturdays. Second Saturday of the season, I went there and I, I owled, 
and he gobbled one time, and I thought, okay, I'm going to just sit here and let you gobble again, and he did. So well, there's no sense messing with him today. Third week of the season, I couldn't go. Fourth week of the season, fourth Saturday of the season, went back to the same spot and said, well, see if he's still here or if he made a mistake somewhere in between. I owled and he gobbled, and I thought, okay, let's see what happens. I started dig my stuff out of the out of and get it ready, and he gobbled on his own. I said, okay, it was a long walk to him. I said, if you, you keep on gobbling while I put my vest on and load my shotgun, I'm going to you. And yeah. he, sure, he sure did. And I got in close to him. He was the only bird goblin that morning. And I tree-called to him, and he double-gobbled. I thought, oh, great, I have your attention. And then he flew down away from me. <laughs> and, uh-huh. of course, when that happens, you know you know that feeling as a turkey hunter. Oh, yes. Uh, but with a little bit more call, and he turned around and came in. And in about 30 minutes, I was carrying him out of the woods. Interestingly enough, though, a hen, right after I tree-called to him, and he double-gobbled, a hen started to talk with him. He never answered her, but because she was starting to yak it up, I started to call a little bit more than I normally would to a bird on a roost, just talking it up, and he would answer me and not the real hand. So I had some confidence it was going to work. So a couple things I did. Number one, I took his temperature two or three times before I actually went after him. Number two, we had good vegetation cover and got in relatively close to him, probably within 80 yards of him. And number three, when I had competition from a hand, I stepped it up a little bit and kept him interested in me rather than the hand, even before he flew down. And that's something that I try to advise people on a good bit is when you are moving in on a turkey that's on the roost or even one that's on the ground that's responded to your calls, if that turkey on the ground is not moving towards you as after he's responded to your calls, but if you'll get as close into that turkey as you're comfortable getting and then move one tree closer, you'll see your success rate go way up. And what will either happen is you'll either be in the ideal spot or you'll bump them. And so you don't end up with as many hung up birds and that type of thing. You'd be just a hair more aggressive. Don't go 60 yards ahead of where you're comfortable, but get to that tree where you're comfortable getting and then go one tree closer. Mm -hmm. See if you can make it. So your key there of getting up close and tight to that bird is, I think, very important. Now, what was it the first couple of weeks that made you not go in and hunt that bird? He just wasn't very responsive to your calling? Um, I actually never called to him the first week or the second week. But mm-hmm. what I did the first week, he answered the owl call, but there was a delay from the time I owl to the time he gobbled. And then he had a couple other birds with him that gobbled, and then he would answer them. And if I owl, there would be a delay before he responded to that owl call. I owl three or four times, and I just got a feeling that he was not ready to play the game. Mm-hmm. So I, I just avoided him. The second week, I determined I wasn't going to owl to him more than one time. I was going to see if he gobbled on his own. I prefer a bird that is gobbling on his own, that I don't have to yank a gobble out of. I owl to him when it was still fairly dark, and he gobbled, but then he never gobbled on his own. I stood there for 15 or 20 minutes. He never gobbled again, and I thought to myself, well, he's got company. The leaves weren't out right. really heavily. I couldn't. He was far enough away that I had no idea whether he had hens with him or not, but I would have laid money on that he had hens with him. So he wouldn't yeah. gobble. He was just going to fly down and have his girlfriends with him right there. By the fourth week of the season, A, I figured the hens were, were somewhat dispersed. B, he was gobbling on his own after I owled. And C, I had good vegetation, good good leaf out cover, so I could get into a good position relatively close to his roost. Mm-hmm. So he didn't, he didn't have to, to come really, really far and, and run into some obstacle that he didn't want to cross. Right. And this is on private land that you're hunting? That was on private land, yes. Yeah. But it's, so on you... private, it's on private land that, that is not posted, so other folks could hunt. 
Okay. You're taking a chance when you leave one out there, and, and that's something that you're willing to do. Yep. You know, I, I would prefer to find a bird that is actively gobbling on it. What I do before the season, I, I try to scout and have about a dozen birds located, so I have a plan B in my pocket. and, and mm-hmm. I don't have to plan, have to depend on plan A if it doesn't look like it's working out. You say that you're actually scouting before season. That is such a novel idea. I can't believe that somebody would get out there and, and actually scout for something that they hunt, you know, instead of just rolling out there on opening morning and realizing you only have one boot and, you know, a 20-gauge shell in your turkey vest for your 12-gauge shotgun. And, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing, Bob. <laughs> how, many, how many unsuccessful turkey hunters don't scout? <laughs> Gosh, I'm, I'm going to guess more than 50% of them. If, you're, if you've been hunting an area for a long time and you have a very good basic idea where the birds are going to be from year to year, it still pays to scout because I like to I call the turkeys before the season. I listen to them. I may, I may use a coyote howl or an owl to get them to gobble, and then I listen to which way they're going and, and where they're going to spend their time because if you know which way they're most likely to move, you got a good, a good handle on which side of them you want to set up on when opening morning comes along. Right. And you also, by at least getting a little bit into the woods and you don't want to go trouncing around where they're roosting and bump them that way or you know, go busting in on them after they fly down. But you also get a feel of the best ways to approach the birds when they're roosted in that area. Any, you know, if there's been any kind of a storm that's come through or, you know, loggers are bad about moving in one day and being gone seven days later. So you are a little bit more familiar with any kind of obstructions that may be there that would keep that bird from when he does fly down, keep him from coming to you. And so, yeah, scouting is, even if you are extremely familiar with the property, it is always, always high on the list of things to do. And they can can fool you from day to day. I had a group of birds, there were four adult gobblers that I hunted for a week. Um, last season, and they were always on one side of the farm that I have access to. And the second week, Monday morning, I went in there. I went to the spot where I just knew they were going to be because they'd been there every day the week before and just had been uncooperative, and they were on the other side of the farm. When they issued that first gobble, I had to make tracks all the way across all the hay fields and got into the woods just in time to be able to find a tree and sit down without being seen. So mm-hmm. scouting pays off, but sometimes they will throw you a curveball. Well, that's why we keep going. Exactly. No hunt is the same as the last. That's exactly right. Well, are you available? If anybody listening to the show has any questions, would it be a problem for them to contact you? Okay. Well, my my contact information, Andy, is in the Turkey Country magazine. My email address is berickson at nwtf.net. And my office phone number is 908-454-1882. Wonderful. I appreciate you doing that. Sometimes... People say, well, dang, I wish Andy would have asked X and have your email address or office number where they could shoot you a question or give you a buzz with a question is sometimes very handy. And a lot of times people don't know who to turn to when they have a question like that. So I appreciate you sharing that information. And you want to throw a plug in for the NWTF before we end the call? Sure. I have been a member of the NWTF for many years. As a, a novice turkey hunter back in the 70s, I joined the NWTF just because it was a group of turkey hunters. But as a state agency wildlife biologist, I often did not have a large enough budget to do the things I needed to do at wild turkey restoration and research work. And the NWTF always came to my aid. So if you are interested in wild turkey conservation, in the preservation of the wild turkey and the 
preservation of our hunting tradition. You need to be a member of NWTF because that is our motto and we stand by it. We are a hunting organization and we do a tremendous amount of habitat work, but we need your help because we can't do it by ourselves. Our members are the strength of our organization. I agree. I've been a member for probably 20 years or so, and I can tell you that of all of the organizations that I belong to, whether they're hunting or civic or anything else, the NWTF truly is dedicated to their cause, and that's all they're about. And it's about the wild turkey, but also about habitat improvement as well. And there's a lot of work and a lot of money being spent on that. Not only does it help the wild turkey, but it also helps other animals and other species to improve as well. So, you know, they're they're doing great work and I appreciate you being part of it and appreciate the work that you've done in the past and look forward to hearing more about some of the work you've got going on now and in the future as well. Sounds good, Andy. I am constantly amazed by our, our volunteer members. You know, turkey hunters are a dedicated group, whether they belong to NWTF or not. But when I see what our members do, the amount of time they spend giving back to the resource, that makes me proud to be among them. Yeah, well, fantastic. And if anybody listening to the show is not a member and would like to join, you can go to nwtf.org and learn more about the organization and probably find several chapters that are close by you for you to join and be a part of and volunteer and participate in JEX programs and that type of thing. And it's not just a membership, but it's the volunteer work, just like Bob said, that really makes the organization great. So, Bob, thank you so much again for taking time out of your day to share some of your knowledge of the breeding cycle of hens and just about the biology of the wild turkey in general. And I wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas to you, too, and best of luck in the upcoming spring season just a few months away. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I wish you a lot of luck as well. And are you going to be in Nashville in February? I will be. Most of our staff will be in Nashville. So if anyone is so inclined, we have a great convention and sports show in Nashville mid-February from the 13th, 14th, and 15th of February. And uh, there's a lot to see there. You're welcome to attend. Awesome. Well, I will be there and I'm going to hang on to your cell phone number and I'll give you a buzz when I get there. And I definitely would love to meet you and shake your hand, but also I'll see if I can trick you into letting me buy you lunch. How about that? I look forward to running into you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Bob. Have a great afternoon and thanks again for your time. All right. Take care, Andy. You too. Goodbye. That does it for part two of episode 20 of the Turkey Hunter podcast. I appreciate you listening in this week, and I'll also appreciate you guys very much. The number of listeners for this show has grown every single month since I've put it out in April of 2014. And that would not happen without you guys sharing it on Facebook and telling your friends and family about it, and I greatly appreciate that. And the whole reason for me to do this show is to help you guys become better turkey hunters. And hopefully we're accomplishing that goal. Heck, I'm even getting a whole bunch out of the show myself. So that's just a secondary benefit for me. But once again, thank you for tuning in. Next week, I'm going to have a good friend of mine who is also a podcaster. He does the Big Buck Registries, Big Buck Podcast, which is also on iTunes. His name is Jay Scott. He has the best voice in podcasting, has a fantastic show, and not only does he know a lot about deer hunting, but the man knows a lot about turkey hunting as well. So next week, we're going to talk about hunting field turkeys with Jay Scott from Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Podcast. Be sure to tune in for that. I look forward to seeing you next week. I hope you have a great week. I know that you have choices, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. Goodbye.
Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.